Hi, this is Matt and Sean from Two Black Guys with good credit from a local business to a global corporation. Partnering with Bank of America gives your operation access to exclusive digital tools, award-winning insights, and business solutions so powerful, you'll make every move matter. Visit bankofamerica.com slash banking for business to learn more. What would you like the power to do? Bank of America, N.A., copyright 2024. In 2006, I was doing a review on drugs that are used by doctors to prevent people being sick after surgery. That's John Carlyle. He's an anaesthetist working in the southwest of England. He'd been reviewing a few dozen research studies published by a Japanese scientist and found something weird about the data being reported. Those results had pretty much always the same ratio of people having headaches. To John, the results looked odd. He decided to look into them a bit more. And then on further inspection, one found patterns throughout all of the data, including the what are called baseline characteristics of people. And in this particular case, those characteristics did not follow the patterns one would expect. And they were exceedingly unlikely to have happened by chance. Once John's team had identified these red flags, they notified the university that employed the Japanese researcher in question, who went on to launch their own investigation. They found zero evidence that the patients had existed, and they described it as if he had sat down at a desk and made the numbers up. It's bad enough that a scientist would make things up in a research paper, But in the case of the Japanese researcher, the made-up study was about medicines intended to prevent people from feeling sick after surgery. If the fraudulent research had not been discovered, it might have influenced the clinical guidelines that doctors rely on when they treat their patients. Largely, medical practice, the things I do in hospital, are based upon trusting the truth of what's been published. So the big fear is that we are basing everything we do on some things that are true and some things that are false. If you look hard enough, you'll find plenty more examples of scientific malpractice. For instance, for more than a decade, cardiac patients in Europe were given beta blockers before surgery to reduce their risks of heart attacks and strokes. But the study that led to those guidelines was eventually found to have been based on partially fabricated data. By one estimate, this instance of fraud may have led to 10,000 deaths per year in Britain alone. So how common is fraud in scientific research? And what, if anything, can be done about it? Hello and welcome to Babbage from The Economist, our weekly podcast on science and technology. I'm Alok Jha, The Economist science correspondent. Today, we're talking to the scientific sleuths who spend their time uncovering fraud in medical research. We want to find out why scientific malpractice exists, how the sleuths do their work, and whether anything can actually be done about the worrying unwillingness of scientists themselves to fix the problem.
With me today is Slavea Chankova, The Economist healthcare correspondent. Slavea, it's great to have you here. It's a pleasure to be here as always. Now, Slavea, before we go into the details, tell me why you started this massive project to investigate fraudulent research. Well, I came across some detective work in medical research by a guy called Ben Moll. He's a professor in Australia. And after talking to him and doing some initial reporting, I realized this was much, much more common than I ever thought. And, you know, the really worrying bit was that, you know, these fraudulent studies actually influenced clinical practice. So patients were being harmed. Uh, So that's where I started. And what I found was even worse than I expected, unfortunately, that clinical guidelines based on fraudulent studies can remain in place for years even after fraud is uncovered, uh, which, you know, is a real scandal. And we don't even know how much fraud is there in medical research because what we are seeing in terms of retractions and papers being found to have fabricated data, everybody thinks they're just the tip of an iceberg. I think it's worth pointing out here that, you know, the way that we understand how science works is that people publish papers, uh, other people try and replicate them sometimes, and they find holes in arguments or mistakes happen or another paper comes along that says something different and then people hash out these arguments don't they science is meant to be pushing at the edges and making mistakes all the time and that's not what we're talking about here is it it's actually fabrications it's it's willful misrepresentations of what's going on and so that's what we're digging into today can you give me a sense of how much fraud there might be out there i mean obviously very difficult to completely get a full number on. But what's your sense? Well, if you look at papers that are being retracted, so that's, you know, you do a study, you write a paper, you publish it in a journal. At some point, somebody finds a problem with the paper, the journal looks closely, and they may retract the paper. So they say it's not reliable or there are some, you know, big errors, which could be inadvertent, of course. So if you look at retractions, probably about one in a thousand published papers is being retracted. But when you talk to people who are watching the space very closely, they think it's probably one in 50 papers that have problems, you know, either fabricated data or really bad errors that make the study completely unreliable. But haven't been retracted. Exactly. Because, you know, the difference between one in 50 and one in 1,000 is, is, is quite large. Uh, and these are, of course, estimates. And of course, like, papers are retracted for honest errors, you know, things happen. But various studies that have been done have found that probably the vast majority, you know, 60, 70 percent of retractions or even more in biomedical science are due to fabricated data. So that's a really surprising number. Retractions are actually normal practice in scientific research, right? If you make a mistake and you find that something you or a colleague has published is wrong, you issue a notice to say this is wrong. And that makes sure that others don't repeat your mistakes. But saying that two thirds of those are because of a fabrication rather than just honest error. I mean, that's really surprising to me. You've written a piece in the current issue of The Economist about all of this. Tell me what you wanted to do in your reporting. Was it just to highlight the issue or was there sort of a bigger plan? Well, both really. I mean, I wanted to understand, first and foremost, the motivation behind these fraudsters. Why were they doing it? What did they stand to gain? And then, of course, why weren't they stopped, even though people knew this was happening? And what I found really shocking was that even though there was increasing evidence of so many papers uh, being fabricated, and if you look at 
the nitty gritty, it's quite obvious. You know, you have tables and papers that have only even numbers, or really glaring stuff that you know can't happen in real life. Even then, those papers are published. They take years to get retracted or they never get retracted. So, you know, the people who are doing this detective work are really, really frustrated, understandably. And of course, you know, I'm a health journalist, so I get quite geeky about the evidence that backs up any advice related to health. So whether it's nutrition, fitness or medical advice. So I always try to look at what's the actual evidence for that and, you know, are the studies that promote this advice designed to reach an unbiased conclusion and so on. And now I have, you know, one more thing to worry about. Like, can the data in those studies be trusted in the first place? Well, that's what we'll be exploring in today's programme. Slavia, thank you. We'll hear more from you a little later on. To get an idea of the type of fraud that's going on and why some researchers end up doing it, I spoke to Dorothy Bishop. She's a retired professor of psychology from the University of Oxford. And she explained to me how she first became interested in scientific malpractice. My day job was investigating the nature and causes of children's language disorders. And I think the first time I started to think about sleuthing was when I realised that a lot of the literature did seem to contain problems, but these were not really fraud. So, I, I mean, initially I was interested in problems with reproducibility that were more in the domain of what would be known as questionable research practices, which quite often people would quite inadvertently be fudging their data in ways that distorted the results, but it wasn't necessarily intentional. And that was a a concern of mine for a long, long time. So I spent a lot of my career trying to check out how that happened, why it happened, and the cognitive biases that made it happen. Can you just dig into that a little bit more? So what kinds of things do scientists do in the sort of day-to-day practice of collecting data and sometimes fudging results that doesn't quite reach the level of fraud, but just is just, you know, everyday kind of stuff? Yeah. I mean, the main one is what we call p-hacking, which is this tendency to measure loads and loads of things or compute lots and lots of different types of analysis and then just selectively pick out the one that looks best and only report that. And if you do that, you can get a quite distorted impression of how strong the evidence is. Okay, so in a messy world, sometimes scientific research can go wrong in those ways. And the idea, of course, is that people try and reproduce results and remove those biases. But when when does it get to fraud? And how did you start to detect fraud? It starts to get to fraud when really there's falsification. Uh, People just make up data or they actually change the numbers in their data. Also, plagiarism counts as, as fraud. And I suppose I first got interested in things that went beyond just sort of what I would call, you know, inadvertency. And it's a little bit of a grey area. So this was a journal editor who was clearly accepting papers by some of his friends very, very rapidly. And they were accepting his papers very, very rapidly. And the papers seemed to be very trivial. So I don't think this was quite fraud. So it wasn't stuff that was made up. And that's when I first, I suppose, got aware of the fact that they're using their position, in some cases to place their own publications in their own journals, or to do deals with other people to get papers published that would not otherwise necessarily pass scrutiny. And I think there's often corruption in the sense that things are not being properly peer reviewed. 
Okay, so once you started to dig into this then, and you, you find that perhaps there's some corruption going on with journal editors and researchers publishing in those journals, is it, as you say, a cosy club to get things into the medical and scientific literature. What other types of fraud were you and your colleagues detecting then as well? Well, you can get things that are just made up. There's another whole line of stuff that has to do with what are called paper mills, which have emerged in the past 10 years or so, which are not just a single individual doing something, but it's actually organised fraudulent papers, either plagiarised or sometimes just made up, being placed in the literature at scale. This intersected with my interest in editors, because some of these are papers that get past regular editors because they're so well constructed as frauds that they're often based on a template of a genuine paper that is perfectly sensible and a few bits are tweaked and then it gets published. And there's been clear instances of that, particularly in the past couple of years. Why is this stuff happening? I mean, what is the advantage for a scientist to publish faked research and an editor to publish faked information? What's the sort of motivation behind it? It's a very good question. The early paper mills were mostly from China and the Motivation appeared to be caused by the fact that you needed to have a publication in a journal of a certain rank in order to progress in your career. This was true for medical doctors in China, so that even if you had no interest in doing research, you had to have a publication. So, of course, the motivation is extremely strong. And if somebody comes along and says, you know, give me $1,000 and you can have a publication, there's clearly a market for that. The Chinese are quite concerned about this and I think are now changing these sorts of practices so that it no longer is so motivating. There are also cases where scientists have been rewarded financially in a very overt way, not just in China, but in a number of countries where you can get a sort of bonus or a really substantial sum of money just on the basis of having a certain publication in a certain journal. And of course, the motivation for the people running the paper mill is purely financial. So this is straightforward fraud. I mean, they're not interested in the science or the literature. They just will create these uh, fictitious papers and, and make money from them. So essentially, for the scientists involved, it's about status. It's about career progression in a system where having significant and prestigious papers is really important. Well, yes. I mean, that would be the, certainly the case for the ones that get into decent journals. I think there's also this real problem with quite, you know, places that wouldn't normally have any kind of research profile as academic institutions who are starting to sort of want to give people credit for having publications because the system has somehow been set up that those institutions will then get more government funds if they have staff with publications. So, it's sometimes being pushed, you know, from a rather higher level and the individuals are like cogs in a machine. So what about the impacts of this in the wider world? I mean, it's all very well for niche scientific studies to be published. But of course, in things like medical research, these studies are the basis of, you know, systematic reviews and other things, perhaps even clinical guidelines. I mean, can you give me a sense of how pervasive the problem is that there's all this fake research out there? Yes, I think this is the real problem. It depends, obviously, on the area of research, but some of the worst examples are cases in, for example, cancer biology, where we have a lot of these papers that are really just designed from templates and 
you've got a perfectly decent paper and then somebody just changes the gene or changes what you know the phenotype is and publishes the paper. These get into databases that are used by drug development companies or, as you say, possibly clinical guidelines, and they are an absolute nightmare. And similarly, you get these intervention papers where somebody does a study or plagiarizes somebody else's paper and just changes the disease. And then this gets into the literature. And as you say, with things like meta-analyses, this can pollute the sort of literature that attempts to synthesize information. So it is really quite serious when you get the things that have medical relevance. And you should be able to assume that if it's in a peer-reviewed journal, it's being peer-reviewed and it's sensible. And unfortunately, that's not the case. Coming up, we'll ask an editor of a medical journal how he screens for possible fraud and what should be done about problematic research. Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Today on Babbage, we're looking at fraud in scientific research. We've already heard about how scientists end up committing fraud, but how can it be detected? At the start of the show, we heard from the anaesthetist John Carlyle about an instance where he detected that some of the data in a research study might be dubious. John is also the editor of a medical journal called Anesthesia. I asked him how common he thinks fraud is in his journal. If you'd asked me that question five or ten years ago, I would have said maybe about one in 20 published papers. So not necessarily the ones we uh, receive, because some of those are rejected and may never be published. But since then, I fear that the rate of papers with fabricated results in might be about one third of all papers that we receive. That's an astonishing amount of uh, fake and, and problematic data. What's caused you to change your mind about the instance of this kind of fakery over the years? The reason I've changed my mind over the last five to ten years is because we started to ask for a lot more data from authors. So we've asked for what are called individual patient spreadsheets, where all the numbers recorded for each patient are recorded on that spreadsheet. If they send spreadsheets, it's much easier to identify false data in those because you've basically got loads more numbers to look at and looking at patterns and so on in those spreadsheets. You've established a model, haven't you, for screening for fraud. Can you just explain how that works? Well, it only applies to a particular type of study, which is called a randomised controlled trial. In that trial, you take a bunch of potential participants and you randomly allocate them to two or more groups. And so the distribution of their characteristics should be randomly distributed between the groups. So you take the numbers, you put them into a software, and then it prints out the probability of those numbers having happened by chance. If those probabilities are very low, then we go ahead and ask for further information. Now, when you detect some fraud, or you think that there's been made up data or something like this, what do you actually do? Is there a process you've established? 
it initially starts off with basically writing back to the authors and saying, can you explain these particular features uh, that have raised some concerns? And then the authors may well be able to explain the particular problems and that's the end of the process. Or if the authors either don't respond or don't respond to the satisfaction of the editors of that journal, then they can proceed to contact the author's uh, employers, the institutions that have conducted the studies and some other institutions as well. In your experience, how do researchers respond when there's an allegation of fraud made? I've never had an author who's put up their hands and said we lied or we made up data or we've made big errors. Uh, Either they haven't responded or they have said, well, we can't supply you with further data because various versions of the dog ate my homework excuses, which range from the hard drive got broken, there was a fire in the hospital, there's an earthquake. Uh, These are actually reasons that have been given to us for not being able to provide data. When we have shown in data that has been provided that there are problems, then those problems have usually been blamed on Uh, medical students who collected data on colleagues who aren't listed as authors. Um, Or by some of the authors, they claim that they didn't know that the data supplied by another author uh, had been fabricated. So uh, it's quite rare to get people who really want to help uh, editors correct the scientific record. I'm coming to the end of a 12-year period as an editor for my journal, after which I'll... um, hang up my coat and I'm left with a big sense of uh, concern that this problem remains. Many fraud hunters find that they struggle to make an impact, even when they do find evidence of fabricated research and have let the journal editors know. I've reported a set of 800 papers and I've been following that set to see what happens when you report them to journals. And after five years, two-thirds of those papers had not been corrected or retracted. One of the most prolific scientific sleuths working today is Elizabeth Bick. She was once a microbiologist at Stanford University, but nowadays calls herself a full-time image forensics detective. I look at images, I look at signs of duplications. So, for example, when an image, the same image is used twice to represent two different experiments... Now, that could be an honest error, but it could also be a sign of uh, fraud. And especially images that have signs of photoshopping, where, for example, the same cell or the same protein band is visible twice. Uh, The chance that that happens by accident is uh, almost zero. So that suggests that that was done intentionally. And, And what kinds of images? Can you just describe them for me? So images in scientific papers could be bar graphs or line graphs, but they could also be photos. So the photos would be of mice or plants or protein gels or DNA gels or images of tissues or cells under a microscope. How did you discover that you were so good at finding problems in these sorts of images? Just by accident, but I've I've also always seen patterns in bathroom tiles or 
planks, uh, like floor planks of laminate. So I would always say, oh, that plank is the same as that plank or that tile is the same as that tile. So I've always had that. I guess that's a, a weird thing to have, but uh, now I'm using that for uh, images in scientific papers. I just discovered it by accident. I discovered a PhD thesis that had two images that were the same, but one of them was rotated 180 degrees. And I recognized it because it had a very distinctive smear or stain. And so I thought, hey, I've seen that image before. And that evening, I decided to look for more of those images, and I found more of them. So I guess all of these papers had gone through peer review, they had been published, and nobody had noticed that. So I guess I realized I have some talent of finding these duplications. That sounds like a superpower to me that you discovered one day. And now that, you, <laughs> now that you apply it to sleuthing scientific papers, which is a very honorable way of using it. Yes, we need to call that out because you don't want other people to waste time and research money trying to replicate those results. If they are the results of an error or fraud, I feel it's sort of my duty, I guess, to to use my talents to spot these things and to flag them on, on a site called PubPeer so that people can see that a particular paper has potentially a problem. Can you just give me an example of how errors or problematic research have led scientists down the wrong path? I mean, because that's the kind of thing you're looking for, essentially, isn't it? Yeah, there, there's a paper that got published in 2006 in Nature, a very high scientific journal. That paper was by Sylvain Lesnay, and in that paper it appears that there were signs of image manipulation. I was not the first person to have found that, and I was asked as a consultant to look at that paper, and I found some other examples by this particular author that also had signs of image manipulation. That nature paper appeared to be sort of the start of the beta amyloid hypothesis in Alzheimer's. Now, it was an influential paper that had been cited 2,000 times or so, so definitely a paper that had a huge influence on the Alzheimer's research field, Although I've also been told it was not the only paper. There were other papers that had evidence for, for that, but definitely a very influential paper that now is under investigation. So this is the idea that amyloid plaque proteins in the brain are implicated in dementia, Alzheimer's. And basically this, amongst others, directed billions of dollars of research around the world into at least trying to understand further how these proteins impact this kind of uh, brain condition. But as you say, the, the investigation for that is still ongoing. But it's, it seems amazing that if you could find that problem a decade or so later, that it wasn't detected all the way back then. I think most peer reviewers are assuming that the paper as presented is the real data, that those photos were real. And they I think if you don't look for fraud, you don't see it, right? If you get an email saying, oh, you've won uh, $80 million from a Nigerian prince, I think the first time we thought, oh, well, that's nice. But, uh, you know, once you know, once somebody else points out that that's a fraud activity, you should not respond to it. Now we know it and we won't be fooled again. But I think a lot of peer reviewers have no idea how to look for these things. And I also don't think that peer reviewers should be screening for this since they're not really trained. I feel this is a task of the journals themselves and they should hire specialized paid people other than unpaid volunteer peer reviewers. You've talked about how you can detect uh, image manipulation or duplicates just because that's what you can do with your own eyes. But is technology of any sort improving what you can do? Yes, there are now several tools on the market. I've been testing a couple of them as well. 
that publishers are starting to use to screen the incoming manuscripts for signs of image duplication. Now, the software is still not ready to be used without a human going over the results. You still need to look at the things that it flags. Occasionally, it will flag duplicates that are actually okay. So for that, you still need a human to go over the results and look at which things are false positives and false negatives, for example. Is there a risk that these sorts of tools might actually make fraudsters better at what they do as well? Yeah, you can imagine uh, that they could use images that they have used before. So they could use this software to to make sure that there's no overlap between these uh, photos. But I'm also in general very worried about artificial intelligence for being able to generate completely unique but completely fake photos that could never be detected by software. And so I'm not quite sure if we can detect if an image has been convincingly generated by AI. So that is what I'm really worried about, how AI could generate fake text, but also fake images. I wonder if you can talk about how being somebody who points out fraud can also be negative for you. I mean, you've had a lot of public pushback from scientists when you've pointed out that various results or images of theirs um, are perhaps problematic. Yes, I uh, I understand that when I criticize other people's papers, that they don't like that, right? Nobody likes to be criticized. But uh, there were a couple of instances where I got indeed a lot of pushback. So one was a French microbiologist, so a person working in my field in Marseille, and he published about COVID-19. He published a very highly cited paper that hydroxychloroquine worked. It was even tweeted about by President Trump at the time. And so it got a lot of attention. A lot of people wanted to use hydroxychloroquine to prevent COVID or to treat it. But there were several problems in that paper. And I wrote a critique about that on my blog post and uh, on Papier. And he was obviously not happy with it. He called me uh, a madwoman or a person of medium intelligence. And he, he said that I was a fraudulent person, that I harassed him, and that uh, he even filed a police report against me and threatened to sue me. Now, I don't think that ever happened. I haven't heard nothing from any legal instance in France that I'm being sued, so I assume it was just a threat. But it it kept me awake at night. You know, it's very scary. I do not work for a university. I have nobody to back me up other than myself. I'm a consultant. And so if I really am being sued, who's going to pay for my legal cost other than, you know, my own private money? But it's a risk I'm willing to take because I feel I should be able to criticize scientific papers. It sounds awful, actually. I mean, especially if you haven't got the institutional backup. So it's worth just spending a moment on that, which is that, you know, this is something that can be quite dangerous for you, at least in a sort of psychological sense as well, Mm -hmm. um, in doing this work. But you're nonetheless persevering with it. What ends up happening to people who are accused or credibly accused of fraud or have their research questioned and proven to be problematic? Um, Unfortunately, not much. When you do fraud, your results usually look much better than they really looked in in reality. And in several instances, we've seen these professors who have paper after paper being criticized for image manipulations. They keep on getting grants and they keep on being a professor at that research institution. And in some cases, maybe a younger researcher, a postdoc or a graduate student will be fired 
that is not the solution. It appears that in those labs, the senior researcher creates an atmosphere maybe of intense pressure or bullying, uh, things like that, where the junior researchers all Photoshop just to get out of that lab and get good results. From speaking to Elizabeth, John and Dorothy, it's clear that the scientific community is perhaps not taking the issue of fabrication and fraud seriously enough, which is something that my colleague Slavia Chankova, the Economist's healthcare correspondent, has spent a long time thinking about. Slavia, where do we begin with this when we're thinking about solutions? Does the scientific community need to start trying to remove the incentives for fraud? Is that how we solve this? Well, that's definitely the place to start. First, you know, we have this system of, it's called publish or perish in academia, whereby if you want to advance your career, you have to publish uh, lots of research. However, journals prefer papers that have groundbreaking results, you know, strong, positive results. And that's not what you find in most of your hard work as a researcher. So there and then you, you get the motivation to cheat and make up a study that you know, looks groundbreaking. And in fact, that's more common than we think. Various surveys in America and Europe have found that scientists, they admit 10 to 20 percent of them that they have actually falsified or fabricated data. And then, of course, you need quality control of what gets published. And this is not happening, unfortunately, because journals, publishers, universities, they have slim incentives to ensure the integrity of the scientific record. You know, many of them worry about being sued by belligerent fraudsters or they're just afraid of losing face. So many of them just will drag their feet or won't do anything unless they're pressed against the wall to act. So perhaps it's worth looking for other solutions. And some of the people we interviewed talked about things like, for example, open publishing. So making sure that things are available, open access, all the data is published at the same time so that other people can crawl over it and try to sort of understand if there's any errors. Or another solution might be that uh, institutions, uh, universities and journals need to take just much more responsibility for actually retracting things and making sure that what they publish is correct. I mean, it sounds really obvious, I suppose, but that's one of the solutions. And then um, Dorothy Bishop uh, suggested something much more clear and official, which would be an institution that dealt with scientific malpractice, maybe even instituted penalties on people who falsify research. Just what's your thinking on these sorts of ideas? I mean, are they saleable? Are they the things that are possible? Or are they just pipe dreams? They're all good ideas, and they're certainly possible. You know, if there's a will, there's a way. And we do have examples. You know, America has the Office of Scientific Integrity, which investigates anything, you know, funded with government money, where fraud accusations may have been raised. So universities are actually obligated to investigate. And some countries are trying to build similar institutions, not many, unfortunately. So they mostly have advisory bodies, but nothing that actually can put someone in jail for misusing money to, you know, fabricate research. But there are also simpler solutions. You have to reduce the incentives to cheat, of course. And for that, you cannot rely on the voluntary actions of journals and publishers, because as we discussed, many of them just don't care. It's a lot of extra work. The kind of stuff that John Carlyle is doing to check the data, ensure that the paper is really solid. And, you know, most journals just don't want to do it. The publishers have no business incentives to do it either. They make money from publishing more. 
and they really have a sort of a captive audience in their customers. So that's the problem. You know, nobody's going to unsubscribe just because this is happening. So is any change possible then? What you're describing is a set of solutions that perhaps are going to struggle to sort of actually get any sort of traction because the incentives are just in the wrong places. Yeah, yeah. My personal opinion is you need some sort of independent enforcement of rules that ensure scientific integrity. Like a scientific police force or something. Exactly. And, you know, some of the people I spoke with said, you know, you need kind of like specially trained, almost like police units, the way you have with art. You have specially trained detectives that can look at a piece of artwork and figure out whether it's genuine or it's a copy, you know, by a fabricator. So something similar you, you can have in uh, science as well. But of course, like there are simpler short-term solutions that I think are quite feasible. So you, you can have, for example, private funders or governments who care about the integrity of medical science, who can do things like fund error-checking efforts, such as those that we heard from Dr. Carlisle, Dr. Bishop, and Dr. Bick, there is a website called PubPeer where anyone can post concerns they have about a published paper. So, you know, there can be a discussion and others can chime in and maybe look at work by the same suspected fraudster. So it's kind of like this community out there that's doing this work now voluntarily for no pay. So if there is funding, kind of like a system to support this effort, maybe more of this will be uncovered. But then, of course, you need to still reform the system so it doesn't happen in the first place. I think you've hit the nail on the head. I mean, if you don't reform the culture of the research activity itself, you're just going to get more and more of this, right? I suppose what it makes me think about is that science is meant to be self-correcting. We said right at the beginning that there are always going to be errors when you're pushing the frontiers of knowledge, and that's okay. It's okay to be wrong in science as long as you admit it and you learn from it. And we sort of have lionized science as, as this way of doing research that is the best that we've got. And I just wonder, after reporting this piece about fraud in medical research, do you think we should trust scientists a bit less than we do? It's a very, I ask that question really guardedly because I don't think that we should be not trusting the outputs of science. But sometimes when you've got as much evidence of fraud going on, what are people supposed to think? Yeah, I mean, science is self-correcting for the most part in the long term, as others try to replicate the results of research or look into the data more closely to check for problems. But that self-correction may not happen for many, many years, and patients are being harmed as a result. So it happens in pretty much every field of medicine you look at, you know, from pregnancy to cardiology to critical care and nutrition. Anywhere you look, you have researchers like those we spoke with uncovering hundreds and hundreds of papers. And of course, in, in some cases, the entire field of science may be misdirected by one study that says, you know, here's a hypothesis, we found proof, and then others try to replicate it and just are wasting money, basically, going down blind alleys. Okay, well, Slavea, thank you very much for all of that. Now, I should remind listeners that they can read the full investigation into scientific fraud in the pages of The Economist this week. But Slavea, before I let you go, can I just ask you what else you've been reading in The Economist this week? Well, in my privileged position as an insider at The Economist, I've actually seen a piece on obesity drugs that will be published later this week which is really, really interesting, just really digs into what these drugs are and what their potential is for such a huge global problem. 
And it's a huge potential. And that will be out later this week. Babbage listeners can get a special introductory deal to subscribe to The Economist at economist.com slash podcast offer. The link is in the show notes. Slavia, thank you very much for your time today. Thank you for having me. Thanks also to John Carlyle, Dorothy Bishop and Elizabeth Bick. And thank you for listening. Babbage is produced by Jason Hoskin with mixing and sound design by Nico Rofast. The executive producer is Marguerite Howell. I'm Alok Jha and in London, this is The Economist. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80 percent less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up Quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. That's Quince.com slash upgrade.